You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Good morning, Redeemer. It's a privilege to be with you all today. Again, my name is David Ritchie, and it really is an honor to be able to worship with you, to be able to be at this church. It was actually over a decade ago, in the year 2011, when I first ever attended this church. And my wife and I attended worship here in a moment in our life where we were asking big questions, where we were trying to discern what the Lord would have us to do with our lives. I remember being in this moment where I was actually a college minister trying to understand, is God calling me to plant a church? And it was at that moment in my life, Dusty Thompson, uh, your pastor, was such a, a catalytic person, uh, someone that really gave me permission and uh, wisdom and support in going forward in that journey. And uh, by the grace of God, we were able to see a broken church, a church that was on the verge of death, replanted and brought to life again. And it has been such a privilege to be able to partner with this church ever since and seeing other churches planted and seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our region, and even unto the nations. And so I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart of the support that perhaps you didn't even know that you were giving um, to so many churches across this region. Um, you really are a part of something that's profoundly bigger than yourself, and I'm honored to be a part of that journey with you in a small way. Like many people, I grew up in the Bible Belt of West Texas. Um, I'm sure that's the story of many people that are in this room. And I grew up in a Christian home with Christian parents. I, I grew up with Christian grandparents reading the Bible. I remember going to a Christian school, memorizing Bible verses, attending youth camps. And in many ways, I had some of the best experiences that the Bible Belt of West Texas had to author. But when I was 16, I, I rejected what I thought was Christianity. I incorrectly thought that Christianity was nothing more than just a, a system of moralism and a lot of times political culture war. I saw Christianity as nothing more than a method of us trying harder to earn blessing from God and avoiding the wrath of his judgment. And so long story short, I began to be rather disenchanted with the church. I saw hypocrisy among Christians. I had big questions, and when I would ask those questions, I, I felt like all I would receive was paper-thin answers. And so I, I began to fall under this notion that many fellow millennials do these days, where we just view Christianity as something that is irrelevant at best and nefarious and dangerous at worst. But my religious angst eventually just cooled into this mixed cocktail of religion and philosophy that was of my own design, something that fit my sense of convenience rather well. And I, I have no doubt that if I had continued on that journey, it would have ended in destruction and death and disappointment and heartbreak. But God was rich in his mercy to me. With great love, he loved me and he breathed life onto my dead heart. He, he awakened me with spiritual life. I was able to see the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have to say that this change Seemed sudden, but it really was something that took place gradually over a sense of time. It wasn't catalyzed by a single sermon or a single religious experience. If I were to boil it down to one essential thing, it would, is essentially a community of Christians that faithfully loved me and showed me what life in Christ actually looked like. I was able to participate in that life with them even before I was a Christian. Somehow, even as an unbeliever, I had stumbled into what I would now call 
gospel community. I shared life with a community of people whose lives were centered on Jesus and knowing Jesus and following Jesus and living in the way of Jesus Christ. And I met this group of people initially because of music. I was a bassist and they needed a bass player. And so I would play music with them sometimes in church settings, sometimes in outer church settings. And we would do more than just play music together. We would share meals together. We would talk about the books that we were reading. We would share life with one another. We'd share even pain that one another were going through. And I remember even asking these guys hard questions, hard questions that I thought were defeater arguments against the gospel. And they would patiently listen. They would love me even through my doubts and the frustrating questions I was asking them. And even when they didn't know the answers to my questions, I was amazed at how well they loved me in the midst of all the angst I was experiencing. And eventually someone suggested that I needed to read the book of Romans if I really wanted to understand what Christianity was about. And so I remember reading the book of Romans in my college dorm room in West Texas A&M University. And something about that moment, the Holy Spirit breathed life and light into my dead heart. I began to see for the first time in my life, even though I was so familiar with the Bible, even though I was so familiar with what I thought was the gospel, I saw for the first time that Christianity was not just another system of instruction and religious um, instructions of how to get to God, how man can get to God. Rather, it was the proclamation of God coming to man in Jesus Christ. And that good news, that, that proclamation awoke my dead heart. And I began to think, if this is true, I want to give the entirety of my life to seeing this mission, to seeing this gospel go forward. See, the Bible was once very familiar to me. The gospel was once very familiar to me. But God had worked through this community of people to make it brilliantly unfamiliar yet again. See, Gospel community, you could say, was the very vehicle through which the spirit of the living God broke through to my calcified heart. Now, I want to be upfront with you because when we talk about this idea of Christian community, Christian community can be very good. It can be also very bad. It can also be very ugly. But what I want to make the argument today is that Christian community is absolutely necessary for us to experience full life in Jesus Christ. You see, the the Christian gospel isn't just a set of propositions that we mentally subscribe to. It is a prophetic promise of power that goes forth and it creates. It creates new spiritual life in us as individuals, yes. But it also goes forth to create a new people. A new way of life that we can only share together. And so in today's scripture reading, we are reading this portion of scripture from the Sermon on the Mount... And you could almost read this passage as if it were a random list of proverbs or sayings, kind of some things that don't necessarily belong together. But I want to make the argument that the thread that ties all of these words and all these teachings together in this section is that they can only be practiced truly in gospel community. In other words, what we find in this text is a divine call to a new way of life, a new way of being human that is in shared community in Christ. So as we work through this text, I want to unfold what I would say are four essential attributes of shared community in Christ. They are, number one, gracious vulnerability. Number two, sacred trust. Number three, prayerful wisdom. Number four, proactive love. So point number one, gracious vulnerability. Jesus begins this section of his teaching with a simple command. Judge not 
that you be not judged. Now, you could read this in a very literal sense and say, well, I mean, we have to make some level of judgments, right? And that's true. We have to analyze situations. We have to evaluate situations on a daily basis. If you're a parent, if you're a driver of a vehicle, if you have a job that causes you to make life and death decisions on a daily basis, I certainly hope that you make good and sound judgments. But there are some types of judgments that we are simply not qualified to make. Our oftentimes we'll find this habit where we would like to take matters of vengeance on another person because we see the injustice of what they've done and we want to be their judge. We want to pronounce a sentence upon them. Oftentimes we feel a temptation to pronounce a sense of worth or evaluation of another person. We might even feel the temptation to pronounce someone's eternal destiny where they should or should not spend their eternity. This shouldn't be the case, but sadly, many Christians do this all the time. We make judgments about people that only God is entitled to make. We make judgments when we nurse bitterness in our own hearts towards someone that we're struggling to forgive. We make these types of judgments when we get in the mindset of measuring our own value by comparing ourselves to other people. And oftentimes we can make these types of judgments when we're actually nursing sin in our own lives. Or we're holding on to something Uh, That's a type of idolatry, and whenever someone else rubs up against that idolatry in the wrong way, it lashes out against them. But we should not make the mistake that all self-righteous judgmentalism is something that only Christians do. In fact, not all judgmental Pharisees believe in God at all. In fact, I would argue that there's a lot of secular heads right now that have made entire careers out of just casting judgment on groups of other people on casting hatred and casting blame upon other people. That's the whole idea behind cancel culture, right? We oftentimes take someone something said or did and say, this basically removes all sense of dignity and honor that this person has. But you see, when we get into this type of mentality, we're actually stepping into the place of God. We're usurping his throne, we're usurping his prerogative to be the only wise judge. That's why the apostle James reminds us there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And Jesus is going to take this idea and further motivate us not to judge by reminding us that self-righteous judgmentalism tends to rebound on itself. It tends to come back on us. He says, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And why is this the case? Well, Jesus is telling us this because he's bringing us to an awareness that we are a people that are in desperate daily need for grace ourselves. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Jesus uses this very vivid and famous analogy. And it's actually an analogy I think that only a carpenter's son can probably truly appreciate. He talks about the absurdity of the judgmental sinner. And he compares this to a person that essentially has a two-by-four of wood sticking out of their eye, but they're judging their neighbor and saying, hey, neighbor, You have a speck of sawdust in your eye, and I'm going to need to take care of that for you. The the idea here is that we all have issues. We all have struggles. 
We all have a sense of brokenness. That's why Jesus will even begin the next sentence with these very harsh words, you hypocrite. It's a really fascinating word. Hypocrite actually in the ancient Greek world simply meant an actor, someone who put on a face, someone that made a show. But Jesus applies this to people that are religious pretenders. He's saying this really strident accusation to wake us up. It's almost like a sense of smelling salt saying you need to examine yourself. You need to be aware of your own sins, your own need for grace, your own temptation to pretend, your own temptation to wear a mask. Now at this point, a lot of people might misconstrue Jesus and say, well, he's just telling us to live and let live. We shouldn't judge anyone. We should not make any moral evaluations of anyone at all. As long as someone's not doing something that's hurting someone else, we should let them do it. We should not intervene. But that is not what Jesus is saying at all. Remember, the whole idea that binds this text together is Jesus is asking us to live in gospel community, in shared community that's founded on him. In fact, what Jesus is going to call us to do is to acknowledge our own struggles so that we can also help one another through those same struggles. He says in verse 5, First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The idea here is that we need humble self-awareness. We need to understand our desperate need for grace and restoration, and we need to experience that in Christ in and through the power of the gospel. And when we do that, when we experience grace and restoration, we are meant to to offer that in community to one another. And this is something that really is only possible because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. The cross of Jesus Christ already exposed us. The reason we're afraid of vulnerability is we don't want to be exposed. We want to stay hidden. But the cross of Jesus Christ has already exposed us. Our sins were so great that the Son of God had to come and die in our place. But the love of God was so great that he was actually willing to pay that cost. When we live with that conviction together, we can actually lay down the burdens of our brokenness and we can experience grace-filled vulnerability. It leads us to point number two, sacred trust. So we continue to walk through this text. Another truth becomes evident. While we must walk with gracious vulnerability, those with whom we share Christian community, there is a sense that we have to be discerning with those that we will entrust that sacred gift to. This principle, I believe, helps us make sense out of verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So to turn and, and expose your heart and your brokenness to another Christian is really a sacred act. It is something that is a, a deeply vulnerable and intimate and precious thing to do. You might even make the argument that Christian community, that those you break bread with, has a type of sacramental quality. It is indeed a means of grace through which the Spirit of God ministers to us and moves in us and through us. And in this context, we we have to see Christian community as something that is intrinsically holy and sacred. And the language that Jesus uses even has some type of linkage and relationship with the holy bread that was set before the presence of God in the temple of Jerusalem. The analogy makes sense because when we experience Christian fellowship, it really is something that is a sacrificial 
and even priestly act. True community is a priceless pearl, something that can't just be given to anyone. Rather, it's a closeness that should be reserved for fellow members of your shared community in Christ that have earned that trust. Now, I'll be the first to say true community is not always easy to find. Sometimes it's a struggle. But I want you to know that searching for and fighting for Christian community is worth it. It's worth the time. It is worth the effort. Because when you can find an environment that is filled with sacred trust and gracious vulnerability, you have found something that is more valuable than a pearl. We have found an ideal environment in which we will grow in the Lord. Pastor Ray Ortland, um, our now retired pastor in Nashville, has this saying that he had for his church in Emmanuel, Nashville. He says, gospel plus safety plus time equals transformation. And I love that. Gospel plus safety plus time equals transformation. And I do pray that that would be the culture of your gospel communities. I pray that would be the culture that defines the Redeemer Network congregations. I pray that that would be the very culture that becomes famous here in Lubbock that would be said about Redeemer Lubbock. Point number three, prayerful wisdom. Questions provoked. Now, how should we discern this inherent tension that lies between not judging others, but at the same time being discerning with whom we shall share that gift of community? Isn't that a type of judgment, you might say? I believe that's why these next few verses are so crucial and why they actually flow out of this discussion. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The Christian life is oftentimes filled with these extremes and a sense of tension that lies in between those extremes. On the issue of community, it's easy to fall into the extreme of simply being judgmental and untrusting towards everyone so that you can never be truly loved or truly known. On the other extreme, it's easy to be undiscerning, indiscriminate, Turning a blind eye to some issues that should cause you not to trust a person. You might be afraid to come across as ungracious or offensive. And I believe this is meant to push us towards a posture, a prayerfully seeking wisdom that only God can give us. I once had this conversation with one of our church's elders. I was at a moment in preaching where I was really just trying to discern uh, this type of tension. It was a different type of tension, but... I was trying to understand when is it appropriate to prophetically speak towards cultural issues? When is it important for the pastor to actually speak to things that are current and in the news that are on everybody's mind? And when is it appropriate simply to stay silent? I wanted him just to give me a simple answer, but instead what he said was, well, there's this moment in John chapter 12 where Jesus says, well, I only speak what I hear my father in heaven speaking. And I love that answer. It didn't give me the answer I wanted. It didn't give me the the clear-cut definitions that I asked for. But what it did is it made me want to pray a lot more. It made me want to seek the wisdom of God whenever I, I approach issues that I simply need to see from the perspective of God. So I encourage you, especially when it comes to these tense issues in community, when you have a difficult issue to speak about to your friend, when you're even navigating family dynamics and family issues, 
pray for wisdom. Pray that the Lord would give you insight to discern what to say and how to say it. Pray for the Lord to give you discernment on who to trust with the issues of your heart, the the broken places of your life. And you see, I, I think that this practice of prayer isn't just a good idea. I think it's essential to Christian community because you see, Christian community is not merely a set of relationships between human persons. No, it is a community in which our binding force is Christ himself. Our unity, our, our love is united in Christ. That means that we need to be in a posture where we're praying for provision and direction. And it is to be a daily aspect. That's why we see these verbs, ask, seek, knock. There's an enduring persistence, a rising intensity. So let prayer be a part of not just your devotional life, but even a part of your community. And here's the good news, is we have a good father that we can pray to. He's not an angry landlord. He, he's not a curmudgeonly boss that we have to deal with and that we have to walk on eggshells before. He is a loving heavenly father. I have three little boys that I love with all my heart. And if they're going to ask me for something they need, I'm not going to give them a rattlesnake or a rock. I'm going to give them a good gift. And I am a sin-fractured person that is walking towards Jesus. And, and if I can love my children that well, your heavenly father can love you so much more. That leads us to our final point, proactive love. Verse 12 has been called the, the famous golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This ethical principle is, is a pretty famous idea. It's in Confucius. Even an Enlightenment philosopher like Immanuel Kant will say this is a pretty good idea. But oftentimes when you see it in other religions or philosophies, the idea is don't do to other people what you wouldn't want them to do to you. But Jesus' call really is much more. It's something that is profoundly more sacrificial. Jesus isn't just calling his people to avoid doing bad things to one another. He is calling us to proactively love one another. And this type of love is not passive. As Thomas Aquinas once wrote, love is to will the highest good of another. And in this way, love is essential to Christianity. It is the preeminent, the first and foremost spiritual grace and spiritual fruit. It is something that is vital to our sacrificial lives of worship unto the Lord. It is something that we need in our life as the primary motivating force for every true act of righteousness. And in shared community in Christ, that means that we rejoice in one another's joy. We weep together in one another's griefs. We lift up each other's burdens in prayer. Perhaps you've experienced brokenness in your life where Members of your gospel community have come around you and provided meals in the midst of grief, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain. I pray that that beauty would shine in and through the life of this church. When we love with a proactive love, it means that we run to pain when one another experiences pain. Even if we don't have answers, even if all we can be is a loving presence and an attentive listener. Love is so important. It's so crucial that Jesus will even conclude this section by saying that the entire theological data, all of the ethical commands of the Old Testament, the entire message of the Old Testament is summed up in this truth that we are a people called to love one another with a proactive love. You see, these ideals, these attributes of shared community in Christ are not just ideas about how we can have better relationships with one another. 
These shared values of the shared community in Christ are found in Christ himself. He is the center. He is the foundation. He is the power that animates our life together. Thus, practicing shared community is more than just a matter of having better relationships. When we live this way, we are actively declaring and displaying Christ Jesus before the watching world. For Christ vulnerably entered into judgment and death on a cross so that we might know and experience the riches of life and resurrection in him. Like a pearl before swine, Jesus' life was trampled on and rejected so that we together might know the riches of life in him so that we might be accepted by the Father. And even though Jesus knew that his own disciples would abandon him and deny him and betray him, He prayed with them in the garden. He prayed a prayer that he knew would be rejected, that the cup of God's wrath and judgment and suffering would be spared him. But he prayed that prayer and he allowed that prayer to be denied so that our prayers might be accepted before him. In his love, he proactively stepped out of the glory and grandeur of heaven and came to this broken world. He was born a man. He lived the life that we should have lived, the perfectly righteous life. And he died the death that we deserved. That is his proactive love. But the Christ that we worship and follow is no longer dead. He is alive. He was raised from the grave. He's ascended into heaven. And now the spirit of the living God dwells within his people so that you and I might be ambassadors for his kingdom. See, that's the true miracle of shared community in Christ, we're giving an evidence, an announcement to the watching world of who Christ is. We are the body of Christ, filled with the spirit of Christ, continuing the ministry of Christ, proclaiming the kingdom of Christ. Yet it only happens through our shared community in Christ. And I pray that that would be a community that you would share and give evidence to the city of Lubbock and the watching world of who Jesus Christ is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, I thank you so much for this church. Thank you, not just for the way this church has faithfully proclaimed the gospel in the city of Lubbock. I thank you for the witness of this church in all of West Texas and beyond. And Lord, I do pray that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, you would fill the people of this congregation with your power, with your might, that they would be able to love one another in such a profound way that the name of Jesus would be unable to be ignored in this city. Lord, I pray um, your grace over the gospel communities that are here and represented, and I pray, Lord, that you would fill them with grace to to love one another, to trust one another, to truly share their brokenness with one another, that they might experience healing and grace. I pray that in and through that, many more people would come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to minister to us throughout the service. Lord, we love you. We need you. It is in Christ's holy name that we pray these things. Amen.